Hey, Three Crosses family, welcome back to the Going Deeper podcast. My name is AJ Venegas. I'm the pastor of Life Groups and Discipleship. And before we jump into our content today, I wanted to announce that next week we will do something a little bit different with our podcast. We have a guest speaker coming all the way from Colorado named Dave Runyon, the author of The Art of Neighboring. And after church, he is going to give a seminar um, that will explain some of the elements of his book. And so we invite you to attend that seminar. That's August 6th from 1 to 2.30. If you're interested in registering, you can register online, threecrosses.church slash events. And so today we are going over John chapter 5, verses 1, all the way through verse 18. And so without further ado, let's go deeper. Well, joining us once again, back in the podcast studio is none other than Pastor Danny Strange. Pastor Danny, a welcome back is in order. I hope you had a great time on your month off. I did. Thank you. It's it's fantastic to be back. I am very excited. This is one of my favorite parts of my work week, so I'm glad to be here with you. <laughs> yeah, I think we uh, at the church have an interesting uh, policy for senior pastors, and I know not all of us are senior pastors, so I'm wondering, before we jump into the content of John 5, could you help us, you know, tell us where you've been? Uh, what is the philosophy of, of keeping our senior pastor healthy? And um, yeah, just share whatever you feel like in that context. Yeah, I think one of our, you know, our church is led uh, by a, a governing eldership board. And uh, these are the men that kind of make up together my boss. And uh, when we were wa- walking through senior pastor transition, one of the biggest things that was a concern for them was just long-term health and tenure of the senior pastor. And so, you know, for those of you who know our church, we've, I think I'm the fourth senior pastor. I know I'm the fourth senior pastor in like 80 years, right? So it's like Pastor Earl founded the church, passed away at a young age. And then Pastor Jake was in the seat for 42 years. Pastor Larry led for 23 years in his role. And now I'm in year five here. And so um, that's been a great uh, area of health for our church. And so as we talked through that, one of the practices that Pastor Larry engaged in annually, uh, which is a little different than the way that I've been doing it, but um, practice nonetheless, is just taking a break. I think in August, he would do this, would take, you know, he'd take a bunch of his vacation in August. He would get out of the day-to-day rhythm of ministry and kind of have this hybrid month to kind of uh, disengage and then re-engage. And so, you know, I, I noticed that practice of his and he and I talked about it. And then I got some advice uh, from another senior pastor as we were interviewing me for this role and I was connecting with other pastors in the region. His name's Gary. And you know, he said, one of the best things that I did for the long-term health of my tenure as a senior pastor was that I completely disengaged for an entire month every summer. You should do it. And so I brought that up to our board and they said, well, yeah, that's what we're like trying to right, do here is create right. long-term health and stability. And, and so, um, you know, the bulk of that time for me is really my family vacation. So I got to spend some time with my kids. We went up to nice. Pacific Northwest and it was just getting my 20th anniversary in July. Uh, so we went down to big surf for a couple of nights. Our kids went to camp and had a kind of a spiritual experience there. Uh, uh, and I went away to Mount Hermon. We were all supposed to go for this family camp where I taught, uh, just 
different churches, the Bible, which is a great get out of my own context for a week. My family ended up being sick. So I was there alone. <laughs> so it turned out to be a week of solitude and prayer, which is how I closed out the time. But um, yeah, so I've got this rhythm of taking a, a month off every summer of the day-to-day rhythm of work here, coming into the office, writing sermons and kind of exploring with the Lord, what's the best use of this uh, four weeks. And I'm guessing for the rest of my life, most of that will be where I use the book of our vacation, but then a little bit of ministry and uh, study and research along the way. And then every uh, three to five years, I'll uh, take a full summer off. And so that's uh, coming up next year would be five full years of ministry. And so um, I'll be off for three months as like a sabbatical time Mm -hmm. and kind of exploring that right now with the Lord, what that might look like. So it's kind of the rhythm is like one month off every year and then two to three months off every three to five years and kind of trying to build a rhythm for long-term health, success, stability, um, to follow the pattern of Jesus, of working and resting, and also just to take the advice of people who've uh, done well and our own church that's uh, had blessing in the area of long-term health. So, um, yeah, it's great to be back, though. Man, well, happy anniversary. And Thank you. It's good to have you back. And, uh, man, I've been enjoying the podcast, so thanks for everybody that hopped in the podcast studio while Danny was gone, but uh, we're back. We we're back, back in John and chapter better than five. ever. John five, <laughs> re-energized, ready to go. John chapter five, and what a passage this is! It starts off with about four to five verses, um, talking about the context. So let me read it. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colored colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And now I got to pause here because depending on the version, and we'll get to this in the podcast, but um, you might have something that reads like this. And they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Man, there's so much going on in the first four verses. So I wanted to throw it to you. Um, What is the context here? Help us set the scene again. Um, You know, this is the third gospel author we've talked about in a row on the podcast. So we started with Matthew, Mark, and now we're in John. So how does understanding who John is help us understand what he's trying to accomplish in this book? Um, what's going on in, in John chapter five, and then all this different stuff. So we're obviously in Jerusalem. There's a Jewish festival going on. This mention of a sheep gate and this mysterious pool going <laughs> on here. So could you help us just set the scene for our listeners out there? One of John's biggest goals in writing his book was that we might see that Jesus is the one. He's the way. He's the life. He's the light. John is the book that's famous for having all the I am statements, the seven I am statements. John's the book for having the seven signs that showed who Jesus was, what his identity was. And I love what N.T. Wright says about this passage, because this is not one of the explicit sign passages, like the wedding at Cana, which was a sign, right? That kind of thing. Um, so it doesn't explicitly say this is a sign, this miracle, this healing. But N.T. Wright says, well, by this, this time in the book, you kind of get the point, right? <laughs> <laughs> that what Jesus is about to do is proving his messiahship. He is who he says he is. There's something significant going on at this pool of Bethesda, and Jesus steps in and shows his true identity above all things. And so the I think I've I think I've been to the pool of Bethesda. Oh, I wow. think that's a place you can go. If it is a place you can go in, in Israel, 
I've been there. Sure. And uh, I can't remember if I've just seen pictures of like excavations or that was me in real life. But Pool of Bethesda is actually a legitimate set of pools. Like you picture going to a, a Roman bath or a Japanese bath or a spa, right? Or wherever it is, uh, an enzyme bath like we might have in Calistoga or a hot spring <laughs> like we got down in, the, in Big Sur. Uh, this was a place for the community to come, obviously, and experience these waters for whatever reason, spa reasons. But also kind of like some of our enzyme bath, there's an osmosis bath near Alliance Redwoods, right? Oh, uh, like some of these places, the people of that day believed that the waters had healing properties and not just God's people. That Some of the research shows that uh, other pagan religions would come to the pools of Bethesda and they believed there was like magic healing in the waters. Uh, and so Jewish tradition seems to be that the way that the healing worked in these waters is that sometimes an angel would come upon the waters and like you read AJ, stir it up and it was a race to the finish line. Whoever got there first got the healing award. Um, and so this is a place that we do know for sure the people of Jesus day believed was a source of, of healing in the waters of life. Don't you just love the research journey that one makes you an expert on baths? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I've got to go. I mean, yeah, there, I need, I think next time I preach this passage, I should go check out some hot springs and you know, check these <laughs> places out. Baths. Yeah. Do some uh, research. Yeah. Well, speaking of research, one of the biggest criticisms of this particular section of passage is that parentheses you might see around your verse four, if you're looking at the Bible. Um, and lo and behold, we come to another text criticism uh, situation. And so uh, if you listen to our episode with Pastor Austin, uh, we talked about John 8 and how there were some manuscript discrepancies going on. And uh, you might have noticed in your own Bibles that in verse 4, we run into this same notation, whether it's a side note, that there's some manuscript discrepancies going on. So I was wondering if you could um, tell us what you found out about this John chapter 5, verse 4, and how it helps us understand this um like how the text came to life or how the text came to be in uh, the book of John. Yeah. For, for those of you who aren't familiar with these concepts or how the Bible came together, the Bible is the most well-attested document in the history of mankind. It's an ancient document uh, comprised of thousands and thousands of manuscripts, bits of man manuscripts, fragments, archaeological evidence, all of these writings, right? Way more than Shakespeare or any of these people. Plato, the Bible is so well-documented and that documentation abides, right? So there's, you know, if there's thousands of biblical manuscripts, by and large, that's part of the miracle of the scriptures is they completely agree in every, right, jot and tittle, Jesus might say, right, right? in every little piece. Um, and yet every once in a while, there's this question mark that is someone's comparing one piece of a papyrus fragment to a piece of, you know, writing somewhere else. They see, wait, wait, that letter's different or that phrase is different or what's mm -hmm. that? And so this is one of those places where um, a handful of manuscripts that archaeology would say are newer, so later, like copies, include this verse here that, that talks about the pools of Bethesda and its uh, healing properties. And so, right, when people write the English translation of the Bible, they look at all these different original manuscripts and their translations, and they have to decide, okay, does this belong? Was this likely something John wrote? Or did somebody add that later? Uh, and this is a really easy one because 
all of the late or the early manuscripts that were written closer to the time of Christ don't have this phrase. Right. It just pops up somewhere in the middle of church history. Hmm. And most of the time that this one pops up, there's actually like a literal asterisk next to it or whatever the, um, <laughs> that I equivalent was in those times really as a scribe trying to say like, Hey, here's a bit of context, right? And you're not going to understand this passage unless you understand right. what the pools of Bethesda was. Right. So the narrative that we have to create of like, okay, where did this come from is a very simple one. And so if you read a, one of the Greek New Testaments that's compiled, we use like the Nestlea land text is what it's called, or the Greek New Testament, uh, UBS five or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, as we look at those, they give a rating on any time there's anything that's questioned. And this one gets like an F rating, right? It's like <laughs> A, B, C, D, F. It's like, no, this was not a writing of John. This was added later. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it's very interesting to do that. That's, you know, you might be interested to go on this journey to see if you find out anything new or amazing about the Bible, the lost letters. You won't because there's nothing <laughs> substantially different, which is amazing. Um, but I'll save you the quest. You're welcome to go on it. But uh, read through all of those things. You can see all of the different discrepancies throughout the scriptures and you'll see um, that there's none that make a remarkable difference in in the core of our faith. Wow, that's uh, amazing to to think about the history of the documents that have been passed on from generation to generation. I can imagine there being like somebody like, oh, wait, people are going to forget what the pool of Bethesda means. And like, then they're trying to add more clarity to it. Um, so let's move on to, to verse six. Then we have the context down. Uh, verse six says, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, speaking to the invalid here, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, we really wrestled with this response because it seems critical to understanding the passage. Um, When you think about that question, that invitation, do you want to get well? there's a lot of responses that could have happened. And so one of the things we brought out was like, of course, yes, of course I do. I want to get well, but look at all these problems that are right in front of me. Uh, I can't get there. Someone else goes down ahead of me. So there's like this, um, I don't know, like I'm peeved that you even had to ask this question, but I can also read when you ask this question, I can also read a couple other, uh, emotions into this. So, one of may have been just like frustration, of course, but I have all these things and I'm, I'm sick and tired of people asking me that or, you know, maybe desperation, excitement. Uh, yes, yes, please. I have no one to help me. Please. May you be the one that helps me into the pool or um, maybe just shocked like, man, nobody's ever asked me this. I don't have anybody that's willing to take me. So when you ask this question in the sermon, like what is your response to do you want to get well? I can imagine there was a broad range of emotions. So um, is this what John's trying to do here? How much are we supposed to be identifying with this person? And what is our emotional reaction to this invitation? Do you want to get well? Tell us about where we are in our walks with the Lord. It's so interesting. You you talked about text criticism earlier, which is this idea of like looking at the text itself, the Greek text. And criticism really just means like just being honest with it and saying, right. okay, w- what's really here and what's made up, right? And so te- the text criticism is what's the real text of scripture. Um, you know, we're talking about a different kind of, a lot of different type of criticism now, right? <laughs> There's this, uh, these new forms of criticism called like reader response criticism, mm. uh, which says, uh, this is like in uh, English literature or in, you know, if you go to 
study in English class in higher education, read a response criticism. It's this idea that what matters in the text is how it makes you feel. Your response mm-hmm. is what makes it true or not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't believe that about the scriptures. Right. I'm sure there's a place for that, even in having our renewed imagination and saying, okay, why do I feel this way when I read this text? Um, then on the other side of the spectrum, there's this like engineering way to look at the text, right? Um, which interesting is that's kind of a, a really more modern way to approach the scriptures mm-hmm. classically. This is, uh, I was reading a bunch of C.S. Lewis during my break, and this is one of the big things that that he was against in higher education in the 1940s. He was in Oxford, and um, there was this, this new form of education called critical theory that was saying that, hey, we look at these documents and we tear them apart and we decide what they mean, whether it's a contract or it's a, um, it's a, you know, a piece of English literature. And C.S. Lewis was the one who got in trouble for this, just really holding this line of saying, that's not how you're supposed to encounter literature. You don't encounter mm-hmm. literature like a, like going out a frog with a scalpel, right? Mm-hmm, you encounter mm-hmm. literature like you encounter a frog in the wilderness, right? He didn't use that analogy, but like not with a knife, but to enjoy it, right? <laughs> right, right. Uh, and so his whole thing was like, we need to hold on to when literature is created for us, it's created for us to experience it the way that the author had intended us to experience it, right. not to be chopped up like under the microscope. And so, um, you know, there's a bit of a tension because in order to experience this text the way John intended it, we kind of have to chop it up a little bit under right. the microscope, figure out, okay, let's be honest with the text because we don't want to read it, our own views into it. And if there's all these different options of, oh, this guy was irritated or this guy was sad or this guy was whatever, mm-hmm. um, we can't just guess. He was something. Right, and right. so, but all we have, the Lord has given us, are the the textual clues and the commentary clues and the archaeological clues we can get to, at our disposal. And so, hmm. um, I try to kind of handle the text with care like that and just say, mm-hmm. I'm just going to come, not with a scalpel to, to cut this thing open, but it's almost like I'm going to cut come with like a whole toolkit uh, of different like magnifying glass or whatever those little... Yeah, is that what it's called? Magnifying glasses. <laughs> I want to look at this text through different lenses and see which narrative makes sense, right? So if you're watching like CSI or something, it's like they just look at the crime scene through all these different lenses. What most likely happened right. to cause this crime scene? And so as I look at this text, that that's what we did. It's just, okay, why would this guy respond this way? What's the mm-hmm. most likely condition of his heart that would output this overflow of his mouth? I have mm-hmm. no one, right? And that's why when I studied it, the one that I landed on was, you know, this guy... Obviously, he's been here a long time. Obviously, John wants us to see 38 years. He's had futile attempts to find healing. He's desperate for healing. John shows us he has no idea who Jesus is. Um, He explicitly tells us that, that I don't know who the man was. You know, Uh, Jesus has to circle back with him later and reveal a bit of his um, messiahship to him. And so the most likely understanding that I see as I look at this text is this is a guy who spent 38 years just waiting for someone to come along and help him get into the waters. Mm. And so part of it, as I see this narrative come out of his mouth of I have no one to help me. Um, what I wonder is, did he look at Jesus? Like, is this the one who's come to help me? Mm. Is this the one who the next time the angel comes, he can help me into the pool. Mm. And so then my heart breaks for him in that direction. (laughs) Maybe that's not what he was thinking, but as I look at every different angle, I can imagine that would output his response. That's the one that made most sense Mm. to me. Uh, It just makes it even more powerful when in the next verse, it says, then Jesus said to him, the invalid, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. And so amazingly, he doesn't have to carry him into the pool. He just does it right there, right then. Just an amazing scene. Uh, I couldn't even imagine being there. But this leads me to my skeptic question. Oh, here we go. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> Interesting transition there. But um, 
I can imagine over the last two episodes, we've been talking about healing and all these different miracles that have happened. You know, with Patty, we talked about um, raising Jairus's daughter from the dead or healing the, the bleeding woman. Today, we're talking about uh, healing an invalid. And we, according to scripture, ascribe these as miracles that are happening. And yet, I think through the skeptical lens, if you take the last two weeks of our conversation, somebody might say, you know, in our modern scientific era, we now have the language to actually understand these things and actually um, can describe what exactly happened. You know, what was in the waters that provided the healing? We could probably go and figure out the elements that that initiated these healing sequences or, you know, even in this situation, Jesus may have pulled some medicinal trick that, you know, we just don't know about yet. And so what they'll do is they'll, they'll, they'll write off miracles. They'll just say, oh, those are just scientific anomalies that have yet to be explained in the language. So I'm wondering what you say to somebody who approaches miracles like that. What, what do miracles have to to do with our society today? Like, do we still see them? Or um, maybe are we blind to them in our scientific era? All these different questions about miracles in relation to the scientific era. I respect the the scientific definition or the skeptical definition that you brought forth because I think it's generous. There are scientific reasons. They're just yet to be explained. Right. So if right, we, we all kind of know what a miracle is and isn't, uh, whether or not you call it a miracle. Right? So it's like if you've got cancer, and your doctor gives you a diagnosis and a prognosis and a treatment plan and you abide by the treatment plan and your cancer gets better, right? We're all going to, as Christians, say, hey, God, God's hand is in that. We would rarely call that a miracle because it aligned with, well, it's not outside of the ordinary. That's what we were praying that the chemotherapy would do. Right. If you go back to the doctor and he's like, hey, there, there's no cure. All we can do now is wait and you know your time is this. And then you go back and there's no more cancer. We're like, well, that's a miracle, right? There's mm. no treatment or right. this is not what the, the scope of the treatment is supposed to do, right? That's when the doctor's like, this treatment is not supposed to accomplish this. Then we're like, I think something miraculous has happened. And so I think that where you drew it out is as believers, we say, well, that's a miracle. As skeptics, we might say, or they might say, well, this is just, there is a scientific reason. It's just yet to be explained. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing that comes to my mind in this case is that's a fair treatment of the both of those. Second thing that comes to mind is both of those require the same amount of faith. I know mm-hmm. we're, mm-hmm. we're either having faith that God miraculously did something by his hand, or we have faith that there is some scientific evidence. It's just, it's just unknowable to us at this point. Right. And our faith mm-hmm. is that some point as science progresses, right, this is progressivism at some point as science progresses, then we'll know the answer. So I just trust and believe that someday there mm. will be an answer to this. Interesting. Right? We also say we just trust and believe someday there'll be an answer to this. And it's probably going to be God saying, hey, I did it. Right? Yeah, right, but at the right. same time, if you show up in heaven someday and you're like, oh man, that miraculous thing, God, how did you do that? He's like, oh, let me show you, man. I actually <laughs> twisted your right T or you know, T cells to kind of go this direction yeah, or your yeah. stem cells activated <laughs> here. It's amazing. And you're watching this. I don't think you from that vantage point would say, oh, then it wasn't a miracle, right? It's like, so I don't know. I just think, you know, and you might, if you're a skeptic, you might push back what I just said about what we would say in that moment. But I don't think you should push back on, they do take the same amount of faith. You're either putting your faith, not in science, we believe in science, you're putting your faith in that science will find an answer to every single thing and there is an answer for that. Or 
you're putting your faith in the fact that God can do it on his own hand. So we, we look at this. I love what Jesus does is the miracles he does are unmistakable. Mm. You know, I was thinking a lot about the miracles that I've experienced here in, in my life. And, and I've experienced some healing miracles like these we've talked about that are unmistakable. But most of the things I've seen with my own eyes where people are trying to do miracles are not unmistakable. I remember sitting at a coffee shop one time and a um, college kid comes up and introduces himself to the lady sitting next to me and and says, "Hey, you know, I just want to know if I could, is there anything I could pray for you for?" She's like, "Oh, I'm, you know, I'm fine." And he's like, "Well, is there, you know, anything going on in your body? I kind of sense there's something going on in your body." She's like, "Well, I'm, my back kind of hurts. I've been sitting at this table for a long time." And he's <laughs> like, "Well, I feel led by the Lord to pray for you." Mm. And and so then he's like, "Can I can I check something?" And so then he like goes under the table and he like literally picks up her feet and he's like, "Oh my goodness! Like no wonder your back hurts. Look at this. Your right foot is right. longer than your left foot." Right. Then he prays for her and um, he's like, "Would you mind if I checked your feet again?" And lo and behold, like her feet are like the same length. <laughs> and he's like, "A miracle has happened in this place." Right. And I felt like you know, whatever. Maybe God can do that. But like I feel like most of the miracles I've seen are more like chiropractic miracles than mm. unexplained phenomena. Like I would guess the most likely reason that happened is she shifted in her seat while he was praying for her or he pulled her (laughs) other leg like as a parlor trick or something like that wasn't an unmistakable act of God. Right. And he led the conversation, like everything in it just like fills me with skepticism as I watch. Right. Jesus walks into this place and the, the easiest outcome would be like, like you said, he'd pick him up, he'd put him in the pool, the guy would be healed. And we'd be like, that's not really a miracle. Like the enzyme bath did its work. Right. Right. But Jesus doesn't do any of that stuff. He uses his words to heal a guy instantaneously who's mm-hmm. been an invalid for 38 years. Right? He walks on literal water. He mm-hmm. calms storms. He raises dead people. He grows people's arms that are like, right. uh, you know, like yeah. he does these things in front of the defy all explanation. <laughs> and so I think one of the things that Jesus seemed keen on doing was miraculous work that was literally God himself did something in this moment. So sure, maybe, right, science someday will show that, um, you know, in this case, this is all made up, right? But or Jesus went to this guy with a withered hand and somehow his body just learned to regenerate instantaneously. It's like, but no one expects that, right? Now what we're right. pushing back on is like, this, did this happen or not? Which mm. also requires faith. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting what you said at the beginning. Um, like if you've come to this point and you don't think that Jesus is the one that, John is trying to push across. It's like, okay, uh, we got to have a conversation. Yes. John has an agenda yes. like any other author right <laughs> of this book. And his agenda is to draw out the truth, but the truth about the identity of Jesus. Yeah. And what's interesting is that the whole conversation shifts at verse nine and 10 to the religious leaders. And so it says the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's just an interesting response. Like you've been healed of a 38 year old ailment, but you can't carry your mat on this specific I mean, day. Can you imagine that? I mean, it's just like, I mean, we all know like legalistic people, religious people. It's like, it's like puts the same feeling in your heart when it's like, you know, somebody comes in off the streets to church and like they're at the end of their rope and they come to the Lord, they confess their sins, they find new life in Jesus. And as they're crying, someone comes up and says, Hey, sir, you need to cover up your tattoos if you're going to be in God's house. It's <laughs> like, come on, man. Like, that's yeah. something is happening in this place. Like, what? Why is that the thing that you think needs to be commented on? Right. So, I'm uh, part of it. It's just like, ugh. So, I want to I turn that question right back to you. Like, why 
is it that they were so protective of the Sabbath that they couldn't even see this miracle taking place? Uh, They were just so set on um, guarding the Sabbath. And I think it's really easy to make these guys immediately the villains throughout the entire Gospels Mm -hmm. because, you know, the religious leaders were just doing all sorts of stuff. But I got to imagine there was something there that was like inspiring this like vigor to protect um, the law of Moses. So what do you think is going on here? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's it's interesting because there's a, Jesus seems to be doing this on purpose because he right. does this a lot, but he is implicitly confronting a system that he created as the one who created the law, right? but that in his mind and in truth has been perverted away from its original intent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think that's, that's the difficult thing, right? I told the story about my skepticism with this guy who's doing healing. And it's like, and, and as a pastor or as a Christian, I kind of walk through when I see something that brings me some skepticism or question marks, I kind of walk through like, okay, what are the litmus tests God has given me to discern whether or not this is legitimate or something that should be, you know, distanced from. And so I'm thinking about, does this align with the scriptures? Is this something that, does this bring glory to God or someone else? Is this guy's trying to make money off this thing, right? I'm asking all these questions. And so I imagine Right, this guy is healed, and the religious leaders are skeptical about the person of Jesus. Who is this guy? Mm-hmm. Right? Who is in the other passages where he brings healing has authority to forgive sins? Who is this guy? And so, as they go through their litmus test of like what makes uh, an appropriate, uh, an appropriate religious leader, like Jesus is seeming to try to be, they're like, this, "There's no way this guy can be from God," because like there is a law that God has given us that we are not free to deviate from. Like mm. We need to rest on the Sabbath. We're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. An act of healing is uh, something that you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath. You can't carry a mat on the Sabbath. And so, right, you can give the 38-year-old invalid a you know free pass, plead ignorance. He forgot it was Saturday. It's like this is the best day of his life. But it's like if Jesus was truly a religious leader, someone might say, he, he would know that today is not a day you should go out and go on a little healing tour. Mm. So obviously this guy's got an agenda. He's not interested in submitting to the law of God. And if someone wants to carry out the will of God without submitting to the law of God, mm. that person is a charlatan. Uh, I think there are two things going on here. I think one of them is Jesus is fulfilling the law and he's not violating it, right? He says elsewhere that... Mm-hmm which of you, if you had an ox that fell into a hole on the Sabbath, you wouldn't stop and pick it up. You can be compassionate on the Sabbath. But even in saying that, it's like what he's saying is like, this man is kind of like his ox. It's his belonging. It's his property. Mm -hmm. And that's where he goes in this too, is like, he says that he is always at work Mm -hmm. because the father is always working. Mm -hmm. If the God of the universe stopped working on the Sabbath, we would all cease to exist. And Jesus (laughs) puts himself not in the human religious leader camp. He puts himself in the, I'm exempt from these laws because I am God himself and says the son of man uh, is also working. And so it's kind of like, you know what I mean? It's like, you can't work on Sundays. That's the Lord's day. It's like, it's the Lord's day. And that's why I'm working. It's like, (laughs) what are you trying to say? Like, that's what he's trying to say. And they know it, right? That's why they try to kill him Mm -hmm. because he's claiming to be equal with God. And so Jesus not only is changing their interpretation of the law, But Jesus is also telling them the reason, right? I am going to fulfill your law and I'm not going to violate it. But the reason that I have some of these privileges is because I am the one who this law was meant to reflect his character. 
I am the one who works on Saturday so that you can rest. I am, which is a, one of John's seven statements, but not in this oh, yeah. passage. Not in this passage, <laughs> but a very important motif in John. Uh, so let's get to those final verses here, um, starting in verse 11. But he, the invalid, replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they, the religious leaders, asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. I want to focus on Jesus' words here. See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. One of the observations you made was that this comment, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you, comes after the healing miracle. And so often we see the reverse where it's like, hey, people are coming to him for healing and he says, your sins are forgiven, like be made well. So he leads off with the sin thing or your faith has made you well, kind of taking the physical healing and saying, no, you need something deeper. In this case, we get the physical healing. We don't see what really happens. And then Jesus returns to him and then addresses the sin. So I'm wondering, what does this sequence have to do uh, with our understanding of this John 5 text? I think the default position of the human heart is to always hear, this is wrong, but we hear God saying, you are in this condition because of something you've done. And if you would just clean up your life, things would get better. Hmm. Right. So Patty's message last week was unbelievable. She shared the gospel. And I talked to a young lady afterwards who said, man, I heard the message. I heard about God's love for me, but I, I do all these bad things and I know that God's not going to forgive me until I stop. So how do I stop so that I can experience the love of God? Because my sin is going to, he's not going to listen to me. And I was able to explain to her like, no, that's the good news Mm. (laughs) is that his love meets you and forgives your sin. He's not waiting for you to clean up your act. And so that's what I love about the order of this passage is that it distances Jesus conversation about our sin and need for righteousness from his compassion, act of compassion and healing. Wow, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think at the same time, the we see that Jesus constantly has a deeper purpose, which is the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. The Son of Man came to forgive sins. That is what he has the authority to do. Right. And so even in the, I think it's in um, Mark 5 or Luke 5, the healing of the, when the, the friends uh, l- lowered their, their friend on the mat, right? Those, mm-hmm. That guy had friends, lowered the friend through the mat and gave him access to Jesus. Um, and Jesus forgives his sins. He accomplishes his primary mission and makes this guy right with God. He puts him in a place where for the rest of time, he'll be jumping and leaping and praising God in the kingdom. That's his primary need. And everyone's murmuring about that. And so then he says, well, okay, so that you know the son of man has the authority to forgive sins. I say to you, take up your mat and walk. And then he goes out on this earth and is jumping and leaping and praising God. And we get to see that the miracle that Jesus did was an effort to demonstrate the authority he had to carry out his primary purpose, which is spiritual restoration. And so I love that, right? That's 
if you had a, a, a primary purpose and a secondary purpose, if you had an opportunity to, to you know, right? It's like the same thing, right? It's like you, somebody comes up to the church and has a physical need, you attend to their physical need, and then they start walking away and you're like, oh my gosh, like, I feel like I need to attend to their primary purpose and go back and be like, mm-hmm. hey, can I, mm-hmm. can I just explain to you a little bit about how the forgiveness of God works? Like, you have that feeling, like I need to have that that deeper, realer, truer, right. more long-term, right? And sometimes it's jerky to be like, I'm not gonna talk to you about your physical need, I'm just gonna meet your spiritual right. need. That's right. what you need more, here's your tract, right? Um, <laughs> but that's why I love that Jesus, even though he slips away, he comes back, finds him back, and he says, you know, hey, um, there's a deeper need that you have mm-hmm. than this, this felt need, this presented need that you brought forth at the pool that's been the defining thing of your life. Now that you're well, can we talk about something that's even more debilitating that you probably never even thought about before, right? right? Or who knows, right? We don't know. That's part of the mystery. There's a chance this guy has some like, maybe he's a loan shark or something, right? He's got some <laughs> habit in his life that's like keeping him from God and Jesus knows and he's like, you need you need to deal with the, the junk in your life, man. Like, right. because I know it stunk to be an invalid for 38 years, but man, you got to clean up your life. Who knows, right? But um yeah, that's what that's what I see when I read that. So this final question, you mentioned the passage earlier, but uh, verse 16 reads, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. But in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And then it says, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, <laughs> making himself equal with God. And so we went over a lot of elements in this parable. There's a lot going on here. Uh, I, I just wanted to ask you to boil it down for us. When we think about this new series, You're Invited, we're talking about this invitation concept. Uh, what are you praying that our listeners are going to take away from this invitation, do you want to get well and everything that followed it? Yeah, I told a little bit of a story on Sunday about a man in our church who was at the end of his rope and found a work of grace from the Lord in a conversation with a trusted friend about the depth of his sin. And this was stuff he didn't realize was in him. This was stuff he'd never confessed before. He didn't even realize he was broken at this level. And yet, right, like what I said, he expressed to me is the the grace and forgiveness he felt from the Lord, the experience he had with God, had, he had never had a greater experience with God than he did in the midst of confession. And I think that is a, a categorical truth that there is what I told him when I met with him and heard his story is I'm not, I said, I'm not surprised. I said, because the core of the gospel is that Jesus has come to forgive your sins, to take them away. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not surprised that the biggest portion of grace you ever experienced tangibly from the Lord was in a moment of confession and forgiveness, right. because that's where God meets us. And I think my hope as it comes to this message of you're invited to experience transformation or to get better, or get well, is it's not like everybody would get miraculously well in our church, mm-hmm. but that they would take up Jesus at this invitation to bring forth what it is in them that is making them unwell. Whether it is confess your sins one to another that you may experience healing, or it's something that you need to talk to your counselor, pastor, right? Somebody about that you're wrestling with at a a different kind of level, or um, there's something going on in your life, whatever it is. I think part of what the enemy does to keep us from transformation is keeps our narrative around, we talked a little bit about the narrative around these things, keeps our narrative around these things very internal. And sometimes they're 
full of lies, the narratives, and sometimes they're true, but we just keep them internal where we feel like, hey, if I bring this stuff out there and people find out who I really am, I will be completely rejected. Mm. But what my friend at church experienced was he was loved, accepted, and met in a way he's never experienced before when he finally mm-hmm. was real. Mm-hmm. And so right, it's not really the power of vulnerability like like a lot of people are talking about these days. It's it's the power of confession. It's the power of truth. Right. And really it's the power of not pretending, but giving Jesus access to the depths of your soul. Um, and that's, you know, that's something we see in the Psalms, right? And even in a person with a storied past like like King David, it's like part of the reason God labels him a man after God's own heart is that he does that work. And whether he's saying, right, praise the Lord, oh my soul, like commanding his soul to bring praise when he doesn't want to, or he's telling God, search me, I don't think you'll find anything wrong with me, gives God access to him, or a, um, right, I, the Psalm 51, a, a confession, a contrite spirit, God, mm-hmm. and, and just trusting you've never turned away someone who's come to you this way, I'm going to come to you this way. So my hope is that people would ex- hear an invitation from Jesus to bring out what is ailing them to him and to trusted community and that they would find healing, not probably not as they expect and not miraculously necessarily, but sometimes even instantaneous healing when this thing that's been a secret guarded for so long just gets the lid taken off uh, through courage. Mm. What a good word to end it on. And uh, yeah, you're invited to uh, expose yourself, your true self to the Lord. And if you're looking for a trusted community, we'd always love to help you uh, with that because that's one of our, our roles here is to facilitate those communities where you can share like that with one another. So Pastor Danny, thank you for this John 5 message and uh, look forward to doing this again and welcome back. Thank you. I can't wait to do this again.